and welcome to the Great Thinkers podcast, in which current fellows of the British Academy introduce the academics that have inspired their work and shape how we see the world today. The artist, art historian and curator John Golding, FBA's extensive career, included writing the definitive book on Cubism and staging landmark exhibitions of Matisse and Picasso, as well as several solo shows of his own work. In this episode, Dawn Addis, FBA, looks back over his life and enduring impact on modern art. I'm Dawn Addis, Emeritus Professor at the University of Essex and a Fellow of the British Academy. And the great thinker I've chosen is the art historian and painter, John Golding. John Golding was elected Fellow of the British Academy in 1994 in recognition of his outstanding contribution to the history of 20th century art. However, by then, he thought of himself more as a painter than a historian. Golding was that rare combination of outstanding art historian and successful practicing painter. He was born in Hastings, East Sussex, in 1929, but grew up in Mexico City, where his mother's family had settled in the 19th century. He went to the University of Toronto to read fine art, and from there made regular trips to New York, where he encountered the new revolutionary American art of Jackson Pollock, Barnett Newman, Rothko, etc. In 1951, he went to Europe for the first time, enrolling as a graduate student at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. His response to art, he later said, was primarily instinctive. Visual images had, and I quote, the ability to absorb and hold me instantly. The process of trying to understand them and to place them in history has always followed on from their initial impact. This aspect of John's approach is crucial to understanding his achievements, both as an historian and an exhibition organiser. In 1953, he saw an exhibition of Cubist painting at the Musée d'Art Moderne in Paris and immediately realised that to understand the development of modern art, you had to come to terms with Cubism. His PhD on Cubism was completed in 1957 and published as a book in 1959, Cubism, A History and Analysis. This is still the fundamental account of Cubism. Golding later acknowledged, rather poignantly, that Cubism is and will remain in some ways baffling. He wrote in his very brilliant review of the 1989 exhibition Picasso and Braque, Pioneering Cubism, I continue to enjoy looking at Cubist pictures as much as I ever did, but I have come increasingly to realise that I do not really understand them, and I am not sure that anyone else does either. Following the publication of Cubism, Golding taught art of the modern period at the Courtauld Institute until 1981. In 1981, he was offered the post of senior paintings tutor at the Royal College of Art. Although he had never stopped painting during his career as lecturer at the Courtauld, leaving the academic world allowed him more time in the studio. But if he never stopped painting while teaching, he also never stopped researching and writing at a time when he considered himself primarily a painter. Among so many things, John was also my tutor and friend. And here to talk with me about John Golding is Professor Christopher Green, Emeritus Professor at the Courtauld Institute of Art, a student originally of John Golding's, a colleague at the Courtauld and collaborator. Christopher, how do you remember John as a colleague? Well, I remember him in a place, and it's rather like this one. You and I were both taught in the same room at the top of the Courtauld Institute, which looked out over Portman Square, which was a square full of trees. 
And we're in a room at the top of the academy, which looks out on the trees of the square in front of us. And it's very like the outlook that was from John's room. And when you were in John's room, you were aware of that. You were aware of what was over the mantelpiece, which was a small work by him, a cutout, a piece which was made with cutout and which had a kind of relationship with Cubism. Of course, we all knew that Cubism was his thing. The other thing you noticed immediately was the table, which was always covered with reproductions of images. And he tended to begin his seminars, because I began as an MA student with him in seminars, he tended to begin them by getting us looking at these reproductions and putting them in some kind of juxtapositional relationship with each other, which got us looking and thinking at the same time. And I think that was really the kind of marker of the way he taught, and in some ways the way he thought, which was that looking and thinking went together. And I think nobody, as much as John, has actually emphasised the importance of being able to look and looking, you could say, is a sort of natural thing, but it, it's also something that has to be encouraged. And so John will start by looking and then lead you into the necessity for then understanding more about it, I mean, to wanting to know the context and the history. And I think that he was always primarily a painter. When he took his job at the Courthold, which was just after, well, about a year after he'd published the Cubism book, but when he took that job, it was on condition he had time to paint. So he was a teacher of art history, but he was a painter, and he was always a painter all the way through. One thing John said about the period of teaching at the Courthold is that if he was in the studio in the morning, he could come into the Courthold and teach in the afternoon. But if he'd been teaching at the Courthold in the morning, he couldn't go to the studio in the afternoon. And there was obviously a kind of strain in some way between the demands of teaching, which, of course, he was quite extraordinary at, and his own immersion in his own paintings. Chris, you have written wonderfully about Cubism and you've extended the understanding of Cubism both from an historical and an aesthetic point of view but I wonder what you think about John's comment that he wonders whether still anyone really understands Cubism. A word he liked using is baffled. He was very often baffled and I think what mattered to him and what matters still to us looking at the earlier Cubist painting, the Cubist Cubist painting before the First World War, is that it is baffling. That is to say it's open-ended It's always leading somewhere, as well as being the works that we see. But it seems to me that John was always a painter, looking at painting and fascinated by the way that painters could move from one way of working into another through sequences of works. So the book is a a history, very much a history. So it has a very much a chronological structure to it. But at the same time, it's an analysis, as he calls it. And it therefore has this kind of critical thrust to it about looking at pictures and finding from them what you can say about what they say and how they move from one thing to another. The fact that Cubism gave birth to so much abstract art may be one of the reasons why it has been so consistently misunderstood by the public, and even occasionally by serious critics and historians. Cubism was an art of realism, and it was as far removed from abstraction as from, for instance, futurism. All the true Cubists had at one time or another come near to complete abstraction, but each of them had almost immediately retracted and reassured the representational element of their art. Golding first exhibited in Mexico City in 1958 and again in 1961. He returned for a time to Mexico in about 1960 and enjoyed some recognition there as a young painter. 
What is quite extraordinary, looking back on that period in his life, in the 1950s, leading up to the publication of Cubism, A History and Analysis, in 1959, is that his own paintings were completely different. They hardly show any sign of his deep immersion in the paintings of Picasso and Braque of the pre-war period. They are really very close to the Mexican muralist whom he most admired, José Clemente Orozco. They are very dark, they are very, very Mexican, frankly, with hints of sort of Native American imagery in their character. They have body-like figures in them, as well as masks. Sometimes the bodies have sort of a skeletal exterior, which is one of the things that he admired about Orozco. He loved the way that Orozco actually you know, depicted people with their sort of bones visible, if you like, almost like the skeletons on the outside and flesh on the inside. He was huge admirer of Orozco, I think partly because Orozco was actually the most painterly of the muralists and the one least dominated, if you like, by the politics of the Mexican Revolution. John was not an admirer of Diego Rivera, not an admirer of Lavella Faro de Siqueiros, but he did admire Orozco. And of course Orozco also painted a lot in the United States and John would have seen the, the paintings in Pomona College in California and also, I think, the great paintings in the Hospicio Cabanas in Guadalajara, which were themselves an influence through reproduction on the work of Jackson Pollock. So at the time that he was working on Cubism, he, he was really I'd say, struggling with his paintings. The paintings are very powerful, these very dark paintings with sort of gleams of colour in them. They're very striking. But he was evidently, as, as we know from an exchange of letters with his great friend, the Mexican painter Gunter Goetzo, in a rather depressed frame of mind. He was worried about the darkness. He wanted to get away from it. He was worried about what he felt was the violence in those paintings. I feel that the question of sexuality is somehow there, certainly there in John's early paintings. I mean, there are some very, very tender paintings of nude male bodies. John, of course, was a gay man. I don't think it is something that could have been talked about at the time that he was painting in the 50s and 60s, a time when he was undoubtedly going through a period of some distress and difficulty. There was inevitably a sort of in-the-closet atmosphere at the time for anybody who was living, relatively speaking, openly as a gay man. It's very interesting to see them in that perspective. I think the point is that in the public realm, right through the 50s, 60s, 70s, as you say, there is silence where sexuality is concerned in relation to the kind of things that John was writing about. I mean, the Cubism book doesn't engage with sexuality, with gender at all because it wasn't something that he could, in his own terms, I think, probably I mean, engage with. And just before he published that book, in 1958, he painted a very memorable painting, which is this grey, nude figure, there's just the nude body of a man, and it's extraordinarily vulnerable. Not a strong alpha male body at all, and a rather kind of a vulnerable body, a fragile body. And I think it says an awful lot about that situation and possibly John's own way of feeling about it. But at that time, just before the publication of the book, he met James Joel, who was his partner until James died in the 1990s. And in the summer, just before the publication of the book, they were together in Italy. And it was a time of extreme happiness and sort of everything was, was, was coming right for John. And from then, he had this I think, wonderful, ongoing relationship, which was a marriage between two quite different but very, very closely involved people. 
So that's, that's a kind of element that goes right through his life. Golick's move into abstraction began with hard-edge paintings, which he showed at Nigel Greenwood in 1970. Working in acrylic and also in pastel, the paintings gradually became freer, with shimmering colours in folds and bars. Well, I've always thought that behind that move into abstraction in the mid-1960s might have lain a sort of feeling that he wanted to much more closely identify with painters as painters and get away from what words could deal with. Because those very abstract paintings are extraordinarily mute in a way, very difficult to write about and talk about. And I have a feeling maybe that he was identifying, trying to identify as closely as he possibly could with what a painter was as he understood it. And one thing that strikes me is that the Orozco-related work, it's very much in his mood of the time. That depression you talk about is extraordinarily direct and expressive. They're autobiographical, of a very strong autobiographical force about them. And that just goes. And in fact, much later, when he gave one of the very few interviews he ever gave, he talked about the fact that he didn't want his paintings to talk about himself. I realised that in my work I was desperately trying to find a compromise between a male and a female body. This is a perfectly valid subject for art and has been explored by many artists, writers in particular. But when I realised what I was doing, I turned my back on this because I am not interested in art as self-discovery or as therapy. And that's what happens. It gets erased suddenly with these hard-edged paintings in the mid-1960s. But when he does that, I think he gets very involved with the notion of tabula rasa, of going back to zero and beginning again. And when you think about the kind of lectures he was giving at that time, which then led into the last book, the book about abstraction, at the end, he's thinking about Malievich, Mondrian, and about artists who went back to zero, in a sense, and went back to a tabula rasa. And I remember in the 70s, he gave a lecture on Malievich. There was a rumour that he was actually painting his own black square. Well, I mentioned this in an essay I wrote about John. And just very recently, I heard from the Power Institute in Sydney, somebody who'd read my piece and said, you might like to know that we actually have John Golding's black square. Because he came to the Power Institute, give the Power Lecture in 1974, and he brought with him his black square, which he left to the Power Institute. So it did exist. So there was John in the early 1970s, thinking about Manjewicz, thinking about abstraction and the whole way you can move into abstraction as a painter, and painting his own version of Manjewicz's black square, which says a lot about the dialogue that constantly went on between writing and painting. This is quite a bombshell. I mean, so now we know that John actually did paint zero. He painted the black square, the end of everything and the beginning of everything. One of the very few interviews that John gave was with his great friend, the philosopher Richard Volheim, on the occasion of John's exhibition of paintings, works from a decade, which was at the Yale Centre of British Art in New Haven in 1988. And he's talking about the question of figure and landscape, and how his own paintings might relate to these particular formats. But he talks about the body always being part of the way he actually has, as it were, moved into the painting as an object. If you do a painting of a figure, or figures in a landscape, for example, the possibilities are endless. You can move the figure about in space, make it larger or smaller and so forth, 
But if you have produced an abstract painting by moving up into body imagery and the picture itself has become the image, it becomes extremely difficult to reinvent the image, to visualise it in different situations or in different surroundings, as you can constantly when you're working in a figurative idiom. We're now in the gallery at the British Academy, which has three of John's paintings hanging in it, which look absolutely wonderful in this light. There's natural light as well as artificial light, which just brings out the colours. We're looking at one called Light from Troy, which is sort of landscape format painting with the most wonderful golden rusty colours, divided very, very lightly by vertical bands, against which these colours seem to press, creating a kind of pulsing rhythm. And the colour is very intense, it's very beautiful. And it's very interesting the way it, it fades out slightly towards the corners and the edges. There is simultaneously a sense of it being an abstract work, but also that there is a real space there. And there's just the very tiniest hint of a perspective line in the corner too. In fact, the more you look at it, the more complex the painting becomes and the more you become absorbed by details and then you step back and see the whole again. Chris, what do you think about this and perhaps in relation to what John was saying in his interview with Richard about the body? If you raise the question of the body, then you raise the question of your relationship to the work itself. The length of the painting is slightly more, I think, than the length of a man standing or a woman standing. It's very large scale, in fact, as a work. And I think actually asks you to come close to it as well as stand away from it. Because it's hung high, you tend to stand away from it. So you connect with it as something seen in a distance. But if you work close to it, you begin to become very, very aware of the surface. And the surface is astonishing. It's incredibly varied and you begin to realize that it's been built this painting it's not just done in one day of working it's been built and built and built because colors are are showing through the paint layers and you begin to get very aware of that and also that the surface paint layers have a kind of roughness to them a kind of rough and smooth series of contrasts which go right across the surface of the painting that involve you but I think John himself liked his paintings to be much more immediately confronting you and that's where the the kind of body relationship would be much more immediate as well one begins to ask oneself, well, is anybody else doing anything like this at the time? And I think not. I think it's a very, very original painting. As an abstract painter, he was doing something quite unique and quite remarkable. Another aspect of Golding's achievement which should not be forgotten and is intimately linked to his absolute belief in the great masters of 20th century painting are the exhibitions he conceived and organised, sometimes in collaboration. Leger in Puris Paris, Picasso painter-sculptor and Picasso Matisse. When he was working especially with Elizabeth Cowling and did the Matisse-Picasso exhibition, did Picasso sculptor-painter both at Tate in London, he was so much concerned with making works speak to one another. I mean, the Picasso the sculptor speaking to Picasso the painter, the juxtapositions, what really interested him, engaged him. I think it was probably John's idea that we should see the sculpture in relation to the painting and the other works and show, in a sense, how Picasso used sculpture very much in relation to the other media he worked on. It is very much an artist's approach. 
My name's Elizabeth Cowling. I'm now retired, but I taught for many years at Edinburgh University. My first knowledge of John was as a student when I was at the Courtauld Institute doing an MA degree, then as a PhD student of his. But I got to know him much better when working on Picasso's Sculptic Painter, which opened at the Tate in 1994, and Matisse Picasso, which opened at the Tate in 2002. I've always felt that for John, exhibitions were a kind of middle point between the practice of painting and the practice of art history, so that exhibitions drew upon his knowledge of art history, but they were very much driven by his eye as a painter. And the choices of works that went into the exhibitions were always driven by his eye. And certainly the selection process was done in a very intuitive way, visually, on the basis, of course, of a profound knowledge of the works of the artists that he was dealing with. If it's an idea that has to be explained verbally, then it's great for the catalogue, but it's not great for the exhibition. And very early on, we started to use postcards, which can be moved around like a deck of cards on the table. And we would meet in the Tate Gallery Library and also at John's own home, where there was a huge kitchen table, and we would play with the cards. And it was one of the most wonderful times of my life, extremely harmonious. We laughed a great deal because John had a great sense of humour and he wanted there to be a few jokes in the exhibition. They tended to get weeded out, but it was this kind of exchange which worked on this very visual level. He had the whole thing, in a sense, hanging in his head, and it was always changing. And this was the beauty of the card system, that you could move things around, you could treat the table as a gallery. Um, And he felt exhibitions could be works of art. And he always said that he considered those two exhibitions were works of art, and was very pleased by that, and terribly pleased by the response of artists to those exhibitions. There was a very strong interest in exhibition making at the time. People like John Golding himself, like Joanna Drew at the Hayward Gallery, David Sylvester, who was a very, very important critic and basically exhibition organiser as well, were concerned to make the best possible important exhibitions here. And I I think it was a sort of golden age in London, actually, of great exhibitions at Tate, at the Hayward, and John was very much at the centre of that world. One of the striking things in John's own writing about other abstract artists is how often he feels that they reach a dead end, they don't know where to go. I see Malievich's black square very much in terms of body imagery. But if it was, as he saw it, a tabula rasa, it was also, in certain respects, a dead end, the end of a process. One does wonder whether he might have felt the same thing about himself at the end. Where do you go? You don't want to go on repeating yourself. You want to have always a new problem a new idea, a new thing to push forward. Chris, do you think that could have been true of his own painting? I think it's very possible. The very last painting is painted in 2002. And very, very extraordinarily, it's vertical format. Because right from the mid-1960s when he went into abstraction, he virtually always keeps to a horizontal format. And in a sense, you could say, 
that was an opening forward. That because he's suddenly changed the format he's working in, the whole relationship between him and the painting is changed. Because it's much more directly, you could say, a format that gives itself to figure painting and gives itself to the relationship between the body, oneself as a vertical body standing in the world, and the painting. But that's the last painting. So it's very possible that after 2002, he had exhausted what he felt he could do as an abstract painter. So there is this possibility that when he saw that painting, it came as a full stop for him, just as he'd had his tabula rasa right at the beginning of his abstract painting, and that that was an end. But perhaps I'm over-dramatising the narrative. But there was another 10 years before John Golding died, and through that period, as far as one can see, there is no work of any importance produced. He admired enormously Rothko, but he felt that Rothko's last works, the grey and black paintings, were a cul-de-sac. And he felt that Rothko's suicide was, in a sense, almost inevitable, that these paintings were a kind of premonition of, well, death, really, and that he'd reached a blank wall. He couldn't see it as something that could lead him naturally and easily into new directions. I think for John... um, He did feel that he was painting himself into a corner at the end of his life. I don't think he was, but this is, I think, how he felt. I think he did lose confidence. And I think John remained, actually, in a a state of depression from the time of James's death onwards. And Matisse Picasso gave him a huge boost, and he loved that. But by the end of that exhibition, he was completely exhausted and said he never wanted to do anything more like that again. Although for John he was much more a painter than he was an art historian, the fact is that his paintings are much less regarded. I think it's time to look at those paintings again and to really begin to see how important they are as the work of a painter who had something important to contribute. I would remember John as being hugely successful at both being an art historian and as a painter. But I think the relationship between them is really fascinating. And I think that he was a great thinker. And the importance of that thinking being linked to looking is one of the legacies that he has left us. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. Find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.